So uh, what I want to do today, this, this paper, um, basically I'm heavily involved with uh, immigration policy with respect to Scotland because Scotland, um, as you know, is having a referendum and if the referendum goes yes, then technically they will leave the United Kingdom and if they become an independent country, they will have to have an uh, immigration system and immigration policy and I have been asked to give them some advice on both. Um, and of course, this is rather complicated uh, with respect to the interaction of the European Union on all this because they want to stay in the European Union. So if they stay in the European Union, they will have to sign up more or less to all the rules, regulations, implicit in Lisbon. So you know, I have a discussion, you know, kind of this, what this means. But uh, today I want to say, well, what happens if it doesn't go that way and Scotland uh, is required to stay in the United Kingdom? It'll be a member of the EU because it's uh, part of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is a member. And what can we do, in a sense, to restructure or change the immigration system to make it work in favor of Scotland, as well as potentially other regions in the United Kingdom? Because we know we have one immigration system in the United Kingdom. Uh, they, people apply, they're either allowed to immigrate to the United Kingdom or not, and they're free to more or less live where they want. And we know from the data that the vast majority of these people tend to uh, live folk apart. Settle in London in the southeast, and that's not without its problems. And yet there's other regions, Scotland being one, where the, num where the demand for people is very different, particularly people of working age, because the demography is different. And basically, in a nutshell, we can think of the de demography of summarizing the de population momentum of the United Kingdom as a whole for say the next three or four decades is rather low growth, but the situation in Scotland is really about decline. So here the population will be growing slowly, the labor force will be growing slowly under most reasonable assumptions. Well in Scotland, uh, again under reasonable assumptions that I'll show in a minute, we're looking at population decline and labor force decline. Now before we start to look at some slides, as an economist or as a businessman, um, we, we know that you need a growing labor force with the right skills to generate economic growth. And if we're going to accommodate the aging population in places like the United Kingdom, as well as most other high-income countries, you're going to need quite high rates of growth to pay for it. Uh, high rates of growth tends to go hand-in-hand -hand with higher tax revenues. Um, if we are not successful at doing that, then we can expect a sizable decline in the standard living of the older people and quite likely the population as a whole. So, it's kind of a, you know, an important issue. Now, what I want to do, I'm going to sort of talk briefly about each of these, and then I'm going to go through uh, what is kind of an analysis of the type of programs I think would be appropriate in the United Kingdom, if Scotland remains in the United Kingdom, and they're not unlike programs that have been set up in Canada. I'm going to empirically, try to empirically assess whether these programs, in fact, work. And basically what these programs do they lower the hurdle for someone to immigrate to Canada if you're prepared to live in a particular region of the country for a minimum period of time. It's usually 1,065 days, which is three times 365, I think. Uh, and that's when you can apply for Canadian citizenship. And of course, when you apply for Canadian citizenship, you're no longer a landed immigrant and you're no longer uh, subject to any, any rules or regulations that uh, landed immigrants uh, must fall because landed immigrants are not exactly the same as Canadian citizens. Okay, and then we'll just make some conclusions. Well, let's just, let's, a lot of people don't realize that 
Um, I'm just going to jump ahead. Fertility uh, in Scotland has been considerably below uh, the United Kingdom as a whole, and also uh, below replacement level for 35 or 40 years, right? I mean, we know the kind of the UK situation, but I was a bit surprised. Um, that's the case. So relative to England, because England is the biggest chunk of the United Kingdom population, fertility is considerably lower and uh, has been below replacement level in most places, uh, most countries in the United Kingdom for some time. So we have this below replacement of fertility. Um, um, this is um, life expectancy. And the other thing that's somewhat shocking about uh, the Scottish situation is that life expectancy is below the UK average, is below the average for Wales, is below the average for Northern Ireland, is below the average for England. In fact, this is both for men and women, has been for, for some time. So if we look at life expectancy, life expectancy in Scotland is much lower. And it's much lower, basically, than it should be. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we, if we try to analyze you know, the differences between the UK level of uh, life expectancy, at birth or age 65 or whatever. And the Scottish level, it's not explained by difference in socioeconomic variables. So differences in education, differences in income, etc. Right? So the standard correlates, you know, the Preston type of idea, you know, putting some socioeconomic variables on the right hand side doesn't explain this uh, uh, difference. And in fact, um, if we decompose it, this lower level of life expectancy that we see in Scotland is very much driven by the Glasgow. We call it the Glasgow effect, where life expectancy in Glasgow is more or less the lowest in the United Kingdom. In fact, the four lowest neighborhood life expectancy, you know, I did some work for the Board of Actual Standards, and they divided Britain up into 650 or so small geographic areas, you know, bigger than your street, but you know, some sort of that, that level. And the four lowest life expectancies, uh, three of them were in Glasgow, and the fourth was in Paisley, <coughs> Which is near the airport in Glasgow, so it's a real issue. And uh, you can see it—you can see it when you look at a diagram like this. This is males on the table, and like this, males on the left-hand side, uh, females on the right-hand side. So Scotland here is bragged by Portugal and Slovenia for uh, males, and Czech Republic and Poland uh, for females. So the level of life expectancy basically in Scotland is more similar to. Uh, Eastern Europe or Central Europe, I think it's more correctly called, than the rest of the United Kingdom. So it's a real problem. And I don't, I have, you know, we can talk about this afterwards if you want, because this, this is a clear cost here. Anyway, the other thing that, the other thing that is very unique about the Scottish situation is that uh, basically for the majority of the period up until about 2004, the early millennium, millennium uh, net migration was negative, and you know Scotland is a mass net, ex net export of people. Here, the population was about five million. You know, you're getting up towards a net migration rate of one percent. And you know, Ireland has said some big numbers as well, but the only other country that I've ever found a region that I've ever found that looks similar to this in terms of its scale for such a period of time is Lower Saxony. Okay, so I mean, it's. Uh, you know, it's really a Scotland is a net has been a net exporter fuel for a long time. I think about what this does from a simple demography point of view. I mean, immigrants, migrants tend to be young, and they tend in this situation young with some have children. So basically, year on year on year on, you have stripped out of the population your young reproducing population, a chunk of it, and this has had long-term uh, implications. 
longer term equations, you know, that kind of accumulate or add on to this below replacement fertility, which we know, you know, is the real driving force between, behind population age. Well, you know, as an economist, uh, as I said, I just wanted to show you this one. Um, this is a diagram that I think shows it all, in a way. This is just some numbers from 1950 to uh, 2051, some projections that we did ourselves. And this is the population age 20 to 64. Now, economists tend to call this the labor force or the potential labor supply only because in a place like Scotland and most other high-income countries, a large chunk of those actually in work are in this age group. In, in Scotland, it's about 95%. So 95% of those people employed are in this age group. So it doesn't leave much for any, any other age group. And what is really unique about Scotland is that, that up until whatever, right now, that number has remained about 3 million. So this is a country, and this is kind of a macroeconomic puzzle. This is a country that has seemed to have fairly you know, high rates of economic growth, increasing life expectancy, even though it's lower than everywhere else, in a period when the labor force never really increased very much, if stagnated, if anything. And we know from standard macroeconomic theory that you know, increases in factor of production are very important in capital, labor, technology, and land, and whatever. Um, I think labor and capital are obviously important. So we've had growth without much change in labor. And uh, gain it, it provides an interesting case study of why this is the case. And it seems to me it points, this is a bit of a science, it points to the idea of productivity increasing, or the productivity of labor increasing because of education is being extremely important. But anyway, this is uh, something that I'm going to figure out sooner or later. Now, what I've done here, well, basically, I've just done some population projections, and I've assumed uh, net migration of 8.5,000, well, zero, 8.5,000, 20,000, which is plus 20,000, which is about the current level, plus 30,000, and negative 70,000. So what's negative 70,000? Well, that's the, that's, the, that's the kind of level of immigration. So let's say Mr. Cameron gets what he wants and he stops all immigration in the United Kingdom and at the same time stops all immigration to Scotland, hypothetically, and yet the same number of people still leave, it's negative 70,000. So you can see that basically we're talking almost exclusive, with this 20,000 one, just basic, 20,000 kind of keeps that uh, labor, potential labor for the 20 to 60 for each group. Is this uh, international migration or migration between England? Yeah, both. International oh, and, yeah, yeah. We, we treat it as both. But, you know, we're saying that he, so you can see that this is really uh, something that's quite spectacular. Now, this is a, these are a couple of years old, these projections that we did. We know we had a bit of increase in fertility, but basically we're in a situation in Scotland. It's after 2004, we had this massive influx of people basically from the AA countries, and the net migration is about 20,000, driven largely by people from those places. And that started to dry up and stuff like this. So, uh, you know, we, and we have done a lot of work on using a mathematical model uh, called something called overlapping generations, computable generate equilibrium model. Uh, if you're interested in that, we have a special issue of a journal coming out which you can read through it. What it does is tends to, gives you, allows you to look at these differences and, you know, how it translates into economic growth, unemployment, and things of this nature, made macroeconomic barrels. And it's pretty grim reading. Um, you know, this is something that could be very, very costly for a country like Scotland, you know, letting its labor force decline. So the idea was that, well, if our fertility is going to re remain below the placement level, 
and we're just going to tick away with gradually increasing life expectancy, then really anything, anything that's going to grow the labor, the only factor that's going to grow the labor force is net migration, and that uh, net migration, the only kind of variable within it that we have any control over, is the international migration from outside the EU. Okay, so, and uh, this just goes through it. Now, so, and historically, uh, since Scotland had its own parliament, Scotland, you know, has um, really understood these issues. Uh, ever since uh, the First Minister Jack McConnell, his famous phrase was, you need to grow the economy to grow the population. So you need to grow the population to grow the economy. And I asked him why, he didn't know. I said, well, because you need to grow the population to grow the labor force to grow the economy. And he started to say that. And he said it dozens and dozens of times. And he was really you know, quite influential in putting some short-run policies in, like the Fresh Talent Initiative, which let universe foreign students stay for two years after graduating, which is, of course, now gone. But things like this, he really recognized the importance of it. But then again, he was not prepared you know, to go the one step further and argue with his um, bosses in London that Scotland really needs greater control of immigration. And you think about the situation, well, it's quite tough, isn't it? Because you have a policy for the overall UK, so, I mean, how, how, how does a country like Scotland influence that? Well, one way they think they do it is they have this occupational shortage list, and that's supposed to feed into the process. But as we know, that's more or less out of date before it's even published. But, I mean, that was one way they do it. There's other kind of ways that they're supposed to sort of highlight Scotland as a place for potential immigrants. Some of the people in the uh, high commissioners or embassies when people are interviewed, they're supposed to bring it to their attention that Scotland may be for you. Okay. But as we know, uh, there's nothing that's region specific, no regionality at all in the policy at the moment of the system. So we have this new system, which is rather interesting because um, when I first argued that there should be a point-based immigration system put in place in the United Kingdom, uh, David Blunkett, is that his name? said it would never work in Scotland, it will never work in the United Kingdom, impossible, and it was just dismissed. And of course, uh, we know what's happened since then. Basically, you've adopted a points-based immigration system, which is similar to the system introduced in Canada in 1967 and copied by the Australians in 1973. And again, we, I don't really want to go through all the details here because we know that uh, how it works. It's kind of a credit scoring time idea. More points increases the probability that you can immigrate. And uh, this is kind of a streamlined, more streamlined system because we had this system before, which is very ad hoc, where there was at least 80 ways to immigrate to the United Kingdom. And uh, you know, it was very hard to understand the system and, of course, very hard to regulate it. Um, uh, and, and also, the, there's some discussion of a points-based system for citizenship. This is just basically means that there's going to be some hurdles put in place for those people that want to have to get citizenship. See, this is kind of the opposite than what happens in Canada. Once an immigrant, uh, once you're going to land in Canada, it's the priority for you to become the government for you to become a Canadian citizen. They like immigrants to become Canadian citizens. So I don't know why. The only reason is, is that if you're a Canadian citizen, they can throw you in jail. And if you're a land immigrant, they can deport you. So I mean, I, but this is, their, this is their policy, is that they are very keen on people who are landed immigrants becoming Canadian citizens. Okay, I'm not going to go through all this because you're familiar with this sort of system as being in place and basically 
you replace this and you had this kind of bizarre categories and uh, Japan Youth Exchange Scheme was my favorite and of course working holiday makers, etc. You know, some sort of, um, you know, a system that doesn't make too much sense rationally, at least to me. All right. Now, we have this Migration Advisory Committee and uh, one of your colleagues, I think he's still on it, Martin, and um, this is a rather strange committee because originally it was set up and um, was supposed to provide advice, but now basically they provide, supposed to provide information on how to implement the policies the government wants to put in place. And we know the current policy is basically to reduce net migration in the United Kingdom from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands, which um, I think most of us would agree is impossible, but you know they're certainly trying to tighten up immigration and reduce it. And not only are they trying to reduce immigration, they're also trying, in a sense, to um, make sure that those of us that are here have the right to be here. And I was telling Scott that, um, just to show you how you know, extreme this is, I got an email from the personnel office to say that I must report to them to prove that I have the right to work in uh, the United Kingdom after 28 years and I'm a British citizen and have two passports. <laughs> so I wrote back a snotty response to the junior, junior person that wrote me. And half an hour later, I got a letter from the boss, who's I know is very nice person, said, look, here's the story. And it's fine, so they're under pressure to do this, as Oxford University is as well. And I said to her, what would happen if I refuse? She says, we will suspend you. Okay, so they would be spend, suspending a British citizen who was worked for 28 years in the university sector. So, you know, this is an example, I think, of you know, the extreme nature of, uh, you know, the policy is that not only do they want to reduce immigration, they also want to make sure that, you know, the paperwork is all in place for those immigrants or those people that are living here. Right, okay. So it's 75 points a lot we don't really know yet um, because, you know, you can think of this somehow as being the price. So you've got the demand for places, you've got the potential supply, and this 75 is going to kind of sort this out. But what's really interesting in Canada is that if you look at what's required to immigrate to Canada on the points-based system, and it's very age-biased as well, but that, not only that, is that something like 90% of the whole Canadian population couldn't immigrate to Canada, right? It's because the standard is so high. Now, whether or not, we don't know yet whether this is a high standard, but of course, if you want to reduce immigration, then all you do is push this up and make it higher and higher. I mean, that would work. Now, you can set it in such a way that, uh, you know, so high that no one would go off. Okay. Now, my sort of the policy dilemma that we have, it's fine. I mean, if the United Kingdom government wants to reduce immigration to England and Wales and Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland and England and Wales are happy about that, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Good luck. Um, I don't think it's clever, but um, you should manage your immigration, not necessarily just reduce it randomly. Yet at the same time, it's clearly the case, and it's been stated, and it's not anything that's controversial, that they, because of the diff this momentum towards labor force decline, they want higher levels of immigration because they want to grow the population, to grow the labor force, to grow the economy. Okay, very simple, simple. So what is the policy dilemma? How does one increase immigration to Scotland, as the government wants, and at the same time reduce immigration to the United Kingdom as all as the UK government wants? So you would think that sort of, you know, that policy 
the larger government wants one thing, the smaller government wants another, is totally incompatible. And it is totally incompatible with the current system in place. However, it's actually easy to do if you learn from the experience of other countries or look at the experience of other countries. And the two that I'm, of course, interested in is Canada and uh, Australia. But let's just have a look at this first. So the P PBS is a UK-wide system. Managing the process of immigration is a reserved power. So it's total responsibility of the United Kingdom government with a little bit of chipping in from the Scottish government. And uh, I'm kind of a sort of a, what they call me, some sort of uh, observer of this migration committee, which I go to from time to time, advisory committee. And then so people immigrate to the United Kingdom, so that's what you get your visa for. Uh, to reside in the United Kingdom, that's your passport, and people immigrate to a country, but not a region, but reside in a region. You end up somewhere. You don't, in a sense, yes, you live in the United Kingdom, but you live somewhere in the United Kingdom. It's a certain region. It can be one of the four countries of the United Kingdom, or it can be you know, the north, or whatever. And uh, there is no requirement to live in a particular region at all. And uh, there is nothing in the UK immigration policy that attracts them to Scotland or Wales or any other particular reason. I mean, I ended up in Scotland by accident, and most people do. Now, what do we know about this? Well, we know that there's several things that happens. Is that in our economic theories, and I think some of the social theories, we assume perfect information, don't we? We know everything about everything. What we know with respect to immigration and foreign people looking at foreign countries. You know, they don't know everything about every region. I bet you, I bet most people in this room don't realize that the average salary in Edmonton is higher than Toronto. Okay. A, lot, a lot of people in this room may not even know where Edmonton is. And uh, basically, they, there's three, uh, Canada was looking at the situation where there were three main cities, well, there still is three big cities, Montreal, Montreal uh, Toronto, order of size, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. And this is where the vast majority of immigrants wanted to go to or ended up. Okay, and there was issues with this. Right? One is it was causing problems. They go there because they have relatives there. So these immigrant groups are set of this chain. It's attractive. But really, um, the economic opportunities were well known that other parts of Canada really needed people more than Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. Okay? That there, was, there were shortages, you know, the population aging, etc. And that, yes, Canada is a country that sees its future in managed immigration, but then again, it's not all about people showing up and trying to fight it out for jobs in the three big cities. So they did that. And we also note, even though I haven't found a lot of information on this, this is, if you end up, for example, my situation, I went to Scotland for one year and stayed 23, okay? You will never stay in this place like Scotland unless you arrive there in the first place. Okay. And we also know, there's some data on this, and if anybody knows um, a source of data like this would be doing work on this, I would be very appreciative. Um, you tell me about it, is that if, if someone immigrates to a particular region and they stay there, say two to three years, then the probability of them moving on actually reduces sharply. Okay. So if you can get somebody to a region, and get them to stay there by hook or by crook for a minimum period of time, then the chances are that they're going to stay a longer period of time. And it makes kind of sense if you have kids, et cetera, right? You know, you get to a place like Edmonton, you know, which doesn't have a lot of good press, or you get to a place like Glasgow, which doesn't have a lot of good press, but there are some very good economic opportunities there for people with the right skills. So 
how did they actually do this? So that if, that, if you believe that story, then they built regionality into Canadian immigration policy two ways. And they have something called provincial nominee programs. Um, Canada is divided up into 10 provinces, and you have three territories as well, which are like provinces. And then there's something called the Canada Quebec, uh, <coughs> Quebec Accord. And basically, this devolves responsibility for immigration to the province of Quebec. Quebec. Now, I'm going. The idea here is that with these two types of programs, it's you know it gets the people to these places. And once they're there, the belief is that it reduces the probability that they're going to move on okay, to another province. Now, just before we go into some of this discussion in a bit more detail, remember the Quebec situation is somewhat different um, than most of the other provinces, because basically it's the one where a large chunk of the population speaks French, and uh, uh, there's still a large chunk also speak English, but it's a French uh, language <coughs> province. And the province is effectively what they call unilingual French, where my province, Ontario, is bilingual. But um, the idea there is that they have a desire to attract people basically who speak French because they believe to maintain and grow the French culture in North America, you have to understand the language. Okay. And they had a problem, well, I'll come back to this. But anyway, this is, so this one here is basically, this is what we could do in the United Kingdom. You could have devolved responsibility to Scotland. And or we could think of some sort of special program for Scotland which allows um, people to get in easier, if you like, if you're prepared to live there for some minimum period of time. So the basic idea is that if you, you apply for immigration in the United Kingdom, you say, I, I'll, I'm prepared to work and stay in Scotland for three years, then you have an easier time of getting in. Or you know, if you apply to Scotland underneath a separate immigration system, you agree to stay there for until plus, usually three years. Um, and how do they regulate this? Well, they regulate this because they make your work permit conditional on it. Okay, so it's not a big deal. They have you have a stamp in your passport that clearly specifies this, and you have a contract. You have signed a contract with the Canadian government and one of these provinces, and this is the deal. And if you break the deal. Your right to work is withdrawn, your right to welfare is withdrawn, and you risk the risk being deported. So it's a very credible policy to take it very seriously, right? Because you can't have a policy that's going to work, won't work unless it's credible. You know, there's some sort of uh, sanction if you break the rules. Okay, so what we have is this country. So, uh, you know, we have, um, you see that in the brackets here is the share of the immigrant population or foreign-born, foreign-born, and uh, the red number here is the population share. So you can see that basically very few people live on the East Coast, 55% in Ontario. So, I mean, these population shares and these foreign-born shares, you know, don't match up very well at all. And basically, if you look economically, this area has been in, you know, kind of economic decline. It's not done so well economically since about 1900. And uh, Ontario is, of course, uh, you know, a very wealthy place for manufacturing. Quebec is similar as well. Then you have the prairies where they grow wheat. They have lots of oil here, and then uh, industry and natural resources in British Columbia. So, 
you have a situation where you know you have basically you know other parts of the country, especially in the middle here, that don't seem to be able to get uh, historically the people that they need. And this is you know when the dust settles, you get a distribution like this. Now, what I just want to um, show you is that this is uh, 2010, and at this time, this is a new place. It just split off the Northwest Territories, Nunavut. Um, as you can see, all the provinces, there should be 10 there, and uh, the Yukon Territory, two territories, have some sort of pro provincial nom nominee program. This is a, you know, they, they basically say, here's the people we want, you know, here's why, here's what we're going to, money we're going to help with spend integrating them. And, um, you know, let's go out there, the immigration system, and see if we can find the people to fill these slots. And this, of course, is very, you can see when they start to finish. But the whole idea here is that with these programs, it's not all about what Trump, or sorry, Ottawa wants, or the, uh, London wants, it's about some sort of discussion and dialogue and deal between the two levels of government, which I'm afraid to say, given the situation that I am using Scotland and the United Kingdom, it's not likely to come anytime soon with Mr. Cameron's views of immigration and the fact that they have clearly stated that there'll be no further discussions really on this matter with Scotland, which uh, feeds nicely into the independence yes vote. Okay, the Quebec, you know, this idea of the Quebec, what they call the Canada-Quebec Accord, was signed in uh, 1991. You know, so this basically, Quebec, took over responsibility for immigration matters in 1991. So they have a long history of doing this. Um, now, let's have a look at some descriptive statistics, or suggested numbers, and I, this is basically a Lorenz curve. What it does down the bottom here is a cumulative share of population, and the, the cutoffs of the cells are province, and cumulative share of immigrants. So the farther you away from the red line is a more unequal distribution. So over time, we see 95, 2002, 2008. Basically, the, the, the Lorenz curve and the Gini coefficients have got smaller, which means this kind of gap between immigrants and the domestic population has got smaller. In other words, immigrants that come to Canada have been more equally distributed across the country consistently since well, I looked at numbers since 1995. Now, there's, there's reasons why this may happen. Uh, but my view, an argument, and I want to test this, is that this has got something to do with these, this devolved or responsibility, or sharing responsibility of immigration matters uh, with the provinces between the two governments, because it works better. Now, so again, we can let's, okay, so there's your, you know, so uh, that just shows the Gini coefficient going down. I mean, they have those of you that have done inequality work, you know, a reduction in Gini from 0.28 to 0.15, you know, it's fairly spectacular to find. Now, here's again, this is just something that's a bit, you know, a simple summary of the situation. So this is the points, the maximum points you can get under the Canada system and the Quebec system. So under the Canada system, you get 25 points, kind of education maximum, some employment experience, if someone's prepared to give you a job, you got some numbers for age. Points for age, older you are, the fewer, and uh, language, okay? Uh, English, French, uh, there's this adaptability thing which is kind of a vague 
um, you argue that if you have a child or something, this will help. And without going, you know, looking at all this detail, but I mean, basically the Quebec system worries less about economics, of it, the employability of it, is more interested in the language. And it can't really discriminate, so it has to give you points for being speaking English. But you get 18 for French, six for English, where here it doesn't, in the Canadian system, it doesn't really matter. But you get the same points if you have the official, know the official language. And this is done by testing. So in addition to this, you must go uh, experience a criminal background check and a health, uh, quite a rigorous health, a medical test. And those are administered by the federal government. So what happens is uh, Quebec picks its immigrants, and at the same time, uh, all the government does is does these checks, uh, federal government does, and issues visas. And there's enough difference in these two systems. Okay. So this is a uh, small problem, just to give you some sort, of, some sort of description. Okay, so the, um, the New Brunswick Provincial Nominate is a special agreement of the Canadian government that allows the province an active role in selecting immigrants to meet specific economic and labor market needs. So the system, the applicant applications will be processed more quickly. And uh, okay, so again, you have to have this here says you know you have to have the you know, the visa from the federal government. And uh, final authority rests solely on the issue of immigration Canada to issue immigrant visas, and you have the health and security background checks. And basically, this is an interesting one because if you if you look at the contract, they say that if you break the contract and leave this province and try to find employment in another one, you know you're negligent in your contract, and your case is turned over to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So uh, trust me. You don't want to be hunted down by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So that's kind of what they do. So it's very serious. And I'll just get back. In the end of the day, this hardly happens at all. People go to these places and basically, you know, knuckle under and stay there, and, the, and then tend to stay um, in the place where they never thought they would stay, but they got there. Okay. Uh, okay. So what? Uh, this is. I suggested this system, this system in Canada, for the Scotland and got all this abuse in the newspapers. Even on my friend David Coleman, migration watch leads to lower quality immigrants in the back door. Easier for foreign workers to get a British passport. So all this sort of stuff. Right? Fancy British passport just moved to Scotland. Plans for migrants to queue jump. So they missed the entire point of the exercise. Right? And they sort certainly didn't um, take into consideration any of the serious discussion that goes on in places like Australia or Canada about this. Now there's also this criticism of provincial nominee programs that comes from the Canadian, some, the anti-immigration lobby in Canada, which exists and is picked up by Migration Watch and other groups, is that yes you have these provincial nominee programs, yes you have this devolved uh, responsibility in Quebec, yet it doesn't work. So I, you know, I gave this talk, well, some, an earlier version of this talk, and said, well, well, there's lots of evidence out there that says it doesn't work. They don't work these programs. So I contacted, you know, I said, well, I'm trying to look. I contacted Barry Edmondson and Don Divorce, who some of you might know are, you know, two, two guys in Canada, both Americans, but they you know, have done the most in applied migration research looking at this stuff, and they said they have never heard of any of the studies that looked at this. Right? So it was just, it was just some sort of understanding that is really based on no empirical evidence either way that I can see. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to think about how can we, and we've got to sort of, how can we um, look at this? Okay. 
Well, what I thought is that we don't really have data on you know, how you got to Canada. You have information whether you're foreign-born, native-born, some surveys, but not large-scale surveys, about you know, what route you got into Canada. Um, but I thought there was another way of doing it, that we could look at the differences in the rates of interprovincial migration for foreign-born and native-born people before and after the introduction of the provincial nominee programs, or before and after the Quebec uh, immigration. You know, the devolution of immigration. Now, this is uh, quite a, this is a kind of a fairly detailed empirical exercise. But what happens here is we look, it's called a kind of a difference in difference estimator. So we look at, you know, what's the rates of native-born people, what's the rate of foreign-born people before and after the introduction, and we'd expect systematic changes would occur if this program works. And basically, what it would do is it would reduce the levels of interprovincial migration of foreign-born people. And we also, well, there's things that affect migration generally, so you want to try to control for those as well. You know, there's something that might raise the uh, rates of migration of everybody, whether foreign-born or native-born. So you have to kind of control for these things at the same time as looking at the difference between the two groups. Okay, now, we can do this with the census data, microdata from the census in a particular way. Because they ask a couple of questions on the census, and we have a census every five years. Usual <coughs> province of territory residence on May 16, 2001, and five years prior to the census date, May 15, 1996. Okay, so you think about this, five and five, five and five. Province of territory of residence on May 16, 2005, one year prior to the census, so this would be May 15, 2000, 2001. So they ask you questions about kind of where you're living where you were living a year ago and five years ago. And of course, we know the year of immigration for foreign-born people. That's just a standard census question that they release in the public use sample tapes. And there's two kind of possibilities. Is um, we could just look at uh, difference between foreign-born and native-born people, or we can do look at these specific cohorts of individuals. Because basically, we're going to compare cohorts uh, before and after. So let's just jump ahead a little bit to this. Okay, so this is um, just looking at people, whether they're foreign-born, native-born, and we fit all these regressions like everybody else, but you can see here that, well, this doesn't fit the argument very well. It shows that the actual rates of interprovincial migration based on this kind of five-year idea and one-year idea is, in fact, higher, I think, in every case for native-born people compared to foreign-born people. So that is, you know, that was a, that's a bit disturbing for these people that say that these programs fail because they just look at this raw information and say, well, it doesn't fit. Well, this is really not so of interest to us because even though you know one is clearly greater than the other and consistently, I mean, it's not controlling for anything and particularly um, right when the person arrived in that country and gathered because it can be they can arrive when they're age one, they can arrive when they're age 30. It, even in a regression that we control for age doesn't really capture these kind of cohort effects, right? Because you really want to know, were you a cohort, was your cohort before or after these uh, policies were brought in place? Okay. So let's, so there's just a little diagram you can see here. Most of it is, is kind of driven by the younger age groups and there's not much difference between the native and foreign born people. This is 2001 and this is uh, the one year rate. So again, you know, as we hardly surprising is that most of the action is in the kind of the younger age groups, the interprovincial migration. But that's not really um, helping us very much. 
Okay. Now, these are, let me see these cohorts, okay? So these are from the 2006, 2001, 1991, 1981 census. And uh, these are these five-year rates. So you can see that 5.7, 6.7, 6.8, 9.4, 2.0, 2.3, 2.2, 1.1 year rates. So well, this is just a rate for these particular groups. And um, you know, it doesn't really tell us much because there's not, you know, they're just a number in the air. They're not really, uh, they're not really uh, compared to anyone. We need a comparator. So we need a relevant comparison group. But an immigrant cohort, there's not a natural comparator, is there? You know, foreign-born, native-born. So what's a natural comparator for an immigrant cohort? There isn't. You know, intuitively there isn't. So uh, the way to get around this, and I think that's more than a way to get around it, I think it's pretty convincing is to use these matching estimators that have become popular over the last few years, well, 10 years now. And you can think of this as somehow being like a control and treatment group. So you have the treatment is the immigrant group cohort, and the control is this hypothetical non-immigrant cohort that you make up. And I'll tell you how you do this without going through all this stuff. It doesn't actually be all that complicated. Okay. So. So we look at, this is our before period, and this is our after period, okay? And we can look at the difference in interprovincial migration means or rates before and after the enforcement or the introduction of PMPs uh, for uh, native and foreign ones. So this is kind of a difference in difference because, uh, you know, you can think about you wanting to control for things that would, if you like, raise the rates of migration for everybody. And the way to do that is to look at, you know, these two groups separately, but also in a sense try to net out the time effect. So you difference out the time effect, and what you've got left is the, any difference between the two groups. And basically you want that difference to be smaller before and after because that's consistent at least with the idea that these programs may have some effect. Okay, so let's, there, okay, so this is, let me just make sure I've got this, right? Okay, so this is our immigrant group. So what we do is we, um, we have a bunch of characteristics here. These are the type of variables, age, sex, marital status, presence of young children, education, whatever. These are the type of variables that when you fit a migration equation, People usually include on the right hand side, you know, human capital type variables, education, age. And um, so we look at our cohort, and then we calculate that for that cohort in 2001, the rate was 6.2 and then 5.8 afterwards. And what we do is we take an, an individual in that sample, and we look at the characteristics of that individual on age and all this sort of stuff, and then we look in the native-born data, and we find someone with the exact same characteristics, so we match them. So the only difference between the two people are one is part of this immigrant cohort, and the other is not. They're identical in all these other characteristics, and because we have a big sample, the census, we can do this. And then we take the second person and we do the same thing. So we match, okay, and then we repeat that whole exercise, once we have found somebody for everybody in our immigrant cohort, we save that value, and then we repeat this exercise 500 times in total. So we create 
this kind of match sample. Okay? So in a sense, it's like somebody who has the same sociogonic characteristics as the, this cohort of immigrants. And you can see that the rate would be much, was lower for that group than the native-born, sorry, the immigrant group, and both <laughs> fall. Uh, we look at before and after, right? However, this fall here is bigger in percentage terms than this fall. So, I mean, it's, and it's not much of a difference. But however, it's not terribly consistent with the hypothesis, and the same here, for the one-year rate, that these programs are working uh, at a Canada level. It suggests, you know, I mean, the thing is, we would like this difference in difference to be negative. That means whatever the effect is of slowing or lowering net migration in every election, you know, it's more for uh, foreign-born than or sorry, immigrants, than this native-born, hypothetical native-born population. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, you can ignore this, but I mean, they're very big samples. You surely would expect you know, some level of significance, even for small differences. But there is no big negative coming out of this. Now, so this is Canada as a whole. And as we know, Canada is a big place and varies a lot you know, by region in terms of economics. So we look at, you know, we look at, we try to break this down a little bit by you know, the provinces or regions. It's not so easy because there's some some confidentiality restrictions in the data which doesn't allow. But Alberta is one of these places that doesn't have a lot, that has a lot of um, resources and it's growing very rapidly. It needs a lot of people. So you can see here that there's some negatives for British Columbia and uh, Alberta and the Prairies, which is the, the three provinces put together. And yet, uh, nothing really going on here for uh, Ontario or Canada, excluding Quebec. So there's some evidence that uh, you know the rates of interpenal migration, like people coming to Alberta and then leaving, have slowed over this period. And if you look at the actual detail, Alberta's been quite active in these programs because it needs people and it has uh, very few people know about the province beyond that it's cold. Okay, now. Again, we do the similar thing for one year, and you can see here, unfortunately, these p-values, so there's, there's really no difference, and there's a negative. Okay, so, again, I'm not sure how to interpret that, but I think the, you know, this kind of five-year idea is, uh, you know, you say, you know, if you stay two years, increases the probability you're staying. There's some, there's some evidence for it, but um, I don't think we can say that these programs are a roaring success, given this information. Okay, so what about Quebec? So we can look at before and after, same idea, 91, 86, 96, so what's happened. Um, and we can also look at more recent um, census as well, but I just started with this one. And again, you know, we're not seeing really much going on here. In fact, this is a big pot. This is actually increased positive. And this is English as a first language. And you can see here, French as a first language is negative but not significant, extremely small, and this is for five years. So the introduction of this situation, the devolution of the immigration system to Quebec, you know, has not really had any impact much on reducing their rates of uh, people leaving after they immigrate. And if anything, whatever's happened in Quebec in that period, in addition to the introduction, say this devolution of the immigration system has actually associated with higher rates of participation in English speakers. But uh, I mean, I know this is very quick, but 
you know, the bottom line here, when I started this stuff, I was really gung-ho that these, these programs are going to show big, 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 if you like, positive program effects in the right direction, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Okay, so, you know, whether or not there's a lot happening here, but I think this is a fairly reasonable way to try to look at this in terms of methodology. And again, you know, we can, we can, you know, time has slipped by, and we know we can look at more recent uh, censuses, et cetera, but you know, I don't really think that these programs are working as well as some people would lead us to believe. So whether or not we can you know, use something like this you know, to make immigration work for Scotland as well as other regions in the United Kingdom, uh, I'm not so convinced that that's the case, even though I argued that originally I thought it would be, but that's why we do empirical research. Okay, so I think we're just, sorry, I think I ran over my time a bit, but uh, I'd be happy to take questions, comments, criticisms, concerns. And thank you very much.